I wonder sometimes when we uh, sing a psalm, a psalm 11, which has definitely got imprecation and, and imprecatory, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's this idea that you're, you're praying that God will, as it were, crush the teeth of the wicked and these types of things you read in the, in the psalms. Matter of fact, some of the people who, are, who have put together throughout the course of history, Psalters, which is a, basically a hymn book with psalms in it, I kind of argued that we should keep those out. You know, it's just too much, you know, if we don't fully understand what's going on there. But of course, if we don't fully understand what's going on in any psalm or any portion of Scripture, we could sing it amiss with wrong thoughts about it. But I have to say, as I was, as I was singing that, because there's a certain discomfort I have in singing that way, but if that's the case, the problem isn't the words of the psalm. The problem is me. And I wonder when we looked at chapter 6 of the Revelation, verse 10, when we have the saints under the altar praying for the justice of God, if they were not praying just that, I just feel like we've become so comfortable. I guarantee you that there are certain environments where the faithful would sing that with gusto based upon what they had seen happening to their brothers and sisters in the faith. This morning, we're going to do something a little different. I, um, in anticipation of our uh, conference this Friday, I thought we would kind of whet our appetites with this discussion about the kingdom of God. And as I was doing my homework and researching this, it dawned on me that later on in Revelation chapter 11, because we're in chapter 11 of, of Revelation, we're going to see a reference to the kingdom of God that is astounding. And we'll get to that a little bit today where, you know, the kingdoms of, our, of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. We're going to see that in Revelation 11.15, probably in the next week or two. And so it might be good for us to kind of get a, our arms around, what does that mean? The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and so forth. So we're going to take a look at that a little bit this morning. We're going to pursue it in greater detail on Friday night with uh, Dr. Noriga and Jason Gallagher and myself. But right now, we're going to take a, just a portion of the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to read the whole Lord's Prayer from Matthew, but then we're just going to dial in to verse 10 of the Lord's Prayer in our study. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, hear now the word of God. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us have a, an accurate and keen grasp of what the scripture speaks of when it speaks of the kingdom of God. Help us, Father, to know how we are part of it, how we are to interact with it how we are to advance it. Help us to know, Father, what you are accomplishing in this world. Help us to appreciate what our roles are in that. So we do pray this morning as we just touch upon this massive subject that you would begin to help us to be wise on what the kingdom of God is and what it means when we pray for it to come. We pray in the name of Jesus, the King of Kings. Amen. Well, with Russia invading Ukraine, I feel like we've developed a, a keener interest in the nations of the world. All of a sudden, the nations of the world are front and center. 
news outlets will flash on their screens the nations that are for Russia, and then they'll flash the nations that are for Ukraine, and usually with a picture of whoever the president or the prime minister or the dictator is of that particular nation. And then we find ourselves, we tend to like certain nations and certain leaders. And other ones we look at and we go dark. That's a dark nation with dark leadership. I would not want to be part of that nation. And sometimes in all of this, we begin to reflect upon our own nation. And whether it's great or whether it's not, many of us kind of lamenting the ebbing greatness of a nation that seems to be moving in the wrong direction. Then you enter into this discussion of patriotism, which I think is a very confusing subject, and I'm not going to embark upon it now, but during Q&A, I'd be happy to talk about patriotism, whether it's good or bad or indifferent, or it should be part of the way the Christians even think. But I'm not at this point embarking upon a political speech. I mention nations, I mention our nation, so that we maybe by analogy might better understand this second petition in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Now this word, nation, along with kingdom, those words, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in Hebrew and in Greek, are mentioned almost a thousand times in the Bible. So this is no small subject, the kingdom or the nation. We, and, and those are just directly, there are other things like the government and so forth. Sometimes these words, nation and kingdom, sometimes they're interchangeable. I mean, I spent a bit of time going, okay, does a kingdom, is it really distinct from a nation? And that's really hard to, to kind of uh, determine. The, the closest I could come is that a kingdom has a king. But other than that, you know, a, a nation can be a kingdom and so forth. So we see these words in the Bible. We see them quite a bit. I guess my question is, what is this kingdom of which Christ speaks when he's asked, how should we pray? And he says, pray, thy kingdom come. What do we mean when we pray for the kingdom to come? And how do we participate in its advancement? Or are we even called to participate in its advancement? Is this something that we're just passive in? Now, it may be true that no worldly nation today, properly speaking, could be called the kingdom of God. The United States is not the kingdom of God. Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Africa, these are not the kingdom of God. Yet at the same time, I don't think that there should be a Christian on earth that would deny that to approach greatness as a nation, to be moving in the right direction as a nation, that nation and the governors of that nation should bow the knee to Christ. You, you would be shocked how many people try to explain away a passage in the Psalms that we see so often. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The idea that, we're, that we would not kind of agree with that, I, I have to say, makes me wonder what in the world you're thinking that you don't think it would be a blessing for any nation to bow the knee to Christ. We read in Psalm 2 that the kings and the judges of the earth are to serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the son, we are told, lest he be angry. There is a, there is a wise 
deference to the holiness and the wisdom and the goodness and the power of God. But what does it look like for the kings of the earth to bow before the king of kings? What does that look like? Or to take it a step further, what would it look like for them to acknowledge that their kingdom belongs to Christ? That their kingdom has been subdued by his kingdom. Again, we're going to push this a little further in a couple of weeks, but Revelation 11.15 is such a glorious passage. I mean, wonderful songs are written. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I would argue that this is something that has happened, but what does it look like? How do we get our arms around this? What is the kingdom of God and what does it mean to pray for it to come? What does it mean to pray for the advancement of the kingdom of God? These are things we should know. Now, let's kind of um, creep up on this through more of a full Bible study. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was the kingdom of God. It was the kingdom of God in an actual, real, political, and religious sense. But in reality, that kingdom and the design of that kingdom was merely to foreshadow the true kingdom of God. The Old Testament was about Christ, and it was all about him coming as king. So when we read of all the kings in the Old Testament and the prophets in the Old Testament and the priests in the Old Testament and the functioning of Israel, it was to teach us about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It is all pedagogical. It's a lesson for us to be learned. But the actual genesis of God's kingdom was concurrent with the birth of Christ. This idea that the king has come. This much anticipated event. Joseph of Arimathea, we are told in Matthew 15, 43, was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. We see the old covenant faithful saints waiting for the kingdom of God. Christ's work of redemption marked that period in history when that kingdom of God would, as it were, be transferred from that which foreshadowed the kingdom, Israel, into the substance of the kingdom, and that is the church. It was taken from Israel, as Jesus taught, and given to a people bearing the fruit thereof. And you've got this new covenant kingdom Sometimes in our presbytery, when we're interviewing a young licentiate to, be a, to preach the gospel, we'll ask them, what is new about the new covenant? And if they don't have an answer for that, they may not get sustained. There are many things new about the new covenant, but one of the things new about the new covenant is that we're looking back on all of the promises of the old covenant fulfilled in Christ. Something new about the new covenant is that it's international in nature. It's not just one nation. It's all nations extended to every nation, we would have a holy Catholic church. And by Catholic, we're not talking a Roman Catholic. We're talking a universal church, every nation and kindred and tongue. Numerous times we read that the kingdom of God in the New Testament was at hand. It's close. Jesus made it quite clear that his presence meant 
the ushering in of the kingdom. In Matthew 12, 28, we read, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, this might be obvious to some of you. Like, yeah, Jesus came. He was born king of the Jews, right? The wise men came. Where's the king? But there are a lot of people that are going, well, no, 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 no. This kingdom doesn't start until the second coming. Now, there's a lot of ways to kind of wiggle that into your theology. The most popular view out there today where, you know, the books, and we've talked about this in the Revelation, you know, the late great planet Earth or all the left behind books and movies and what have you. If you start reading, they'll say, well, no, no, what... I was in a Bible study where this was being taught. They're saying, well, when we pray, thy kingdom come, what we're praying for is the second coming. Because the kingdom of Christ doesn't start until he comes again. Remember we talked in our Sunday school hour, and I said, what's the millennium? The millennium is the reign of Christ. It is Christ upon his throne. But Jesus is saying here, if you see me cast out demons, then what? The kingdom of God has begun. So I think it's strained exegesis to say that the kingdom of God is not yet here. Now, I don't want to misrepresent the position. They'll say, well, it's here in a spiritual sense, but not in any kind of material sense, and on and on. But I think the most natural reading here is that when Jesus came, he started his kingdom. So let's, before we get into a real definition, because I'm going to expect that when I run into you eating donuts after the sermon, and I, tell, and I ask you, what's the kingdom of God? I am going to expect an answer. And if you don't know an answer, knowing me, I'm going to feel guilty that I wasn't very clear, but I'm hoping you'll feel guilty as well. <laughs> so let's just kind of march upon this now, because Jesus comes preaching the kingdom. John the Baptist comes preaching the kingdom. And we, in Matthew especially, we see the kingdom parables, and there's some things we learn about the kingdom. What we learn about the kingdom is that it starts small like a mustard seed and grows large and becomes the biggest plant in the garden. What we learn in these kingdom parables is like leaven, it permeates the whole loaf. So we see two different dynamics there. One is that it's, get, it's kind of extensively getting bigger and then intensively it's kind of affecting every aspect of that which it touches. So it's not just getting bigger, it's permeating, like leaven. You can't, once you put the leaven in, the loaf, and it starts growing, you can't get in there and take the leaven out, right? Because it weaves itself into the very loaf. The Bible seems to indicate that even though this kingdom is not like other kingdoms, all other kingdoms will be won over by this kingdom. Again, Revelation eleven fifteen. then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world, and some of your versions will just have the singular there, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, what you'll hear, and again, we can talk about this in the question and answer time, you're going to be like, so Pastor Paul, you're saying he is currently, this is the current condition. And I'll say, yes. And you're going to ask me something like, well, it sure doesn't seem like it. But you're going to have to be in Q&A to hear the answer to that question. So I'm trying to keep my sermons under an hour. A new goal, under an hour. Yeah. The success, by the way, of this kingdom will be accomplished by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. 
We read that, we read that in uh, Isaiah 9, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this in reference to the kingdom. So, so some people would read that in such a way as to go, oh yeah, he'll do it and he's going to do it all. And I would argue, no, the means by which he does it is by changing people, changing hearts. The way the world is changed by the zeal of the Lord is by the Lord one person at a time bringing people into that kingdom. It would appear that this is the task of Christ throughout the course of history, and that is the growth of his kingdom. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25, then comes the end. So he's kind of going, Paul's doing this quick, okay, let's go from the beginning to the end. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So he's kind of going, here's the end, and we'll see in a second, the last enemy is death. But what's he doing in the meantime, between now and then? The most quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament, from Psalm 110, for he must reign till he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Now again, we kind of being being raised the way we are might feel uncomfortable with this idea of being made a footstool and what have you. But a couple, you have a couple of options, and I think Grant said it nicely, you know, with his reference to Augustine. You either flee from him or you flee to him. He, you know, he, he either will save you or he will judge you. And he's going to reign in all that which is evil, all that which is tyrannical, all that which is oppressive. These... These are the things that he's addressing in his leadership throughout the course of history. And he will reign until he puts all of that under his feet. And at the very end, when he has accomplished at whatever level he's deemed to accomplish it, and I can't tell you that, I can't tell you exactly what that will look like, the last enemy will be death itself. Moving on, so we have that, that it, it grows, Christ is doing this, you know, it is something that is his that is his quest throughout the course of history, utilizing us in that quest. But we also have to recognize that, strictly speaking, the kingdom of God is not a political kingdom. And there might be some like political form to it, but hopefully you understand what I mean, that it's not a political kingdom. The kingdom of God is not like other kingdoms with borders and a flag and a military. I guess there is a Christian flag. I just found that out a few years ago. And I don't know enough about the Christian flag uh, to say much about it other than there's part of me that's just not comfortable with the Christian flag. It's, and it's a 20th century phenomenon. It doesn't go back very far. And uh, it's interesting. I say it doesn't have a military, but it kind of does have a military. And the military is us. And the weapons of our warfare are, are love and truth and peace and so forth. You know, so... So what we learned in the Old Testament about this battle taking place, we come into the New Testament and we realize the weapons of our warfare are spiritual and we're all enlisted in this army, as it were. The means by which this kingdom advances is not like the way other kingdoms advance. It's not like the Caesars. It's not like Alexander the Great. It's not the, can, the, way we, the way this moves forward is different than the way we would normally understand a kingdom to move forward. In John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight 
so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Interestingly enough, Peter needed to learn that, right? Because he drew a sword and tried to do exactly what Jesus said not to do, right? He cut off Malchus's ear, and then Jesus put it back on. And so, you know, similar to us, we kind of mistake the way this kingdom is to advance. But let me tell you something about this verse, because you're going to hear this verse used oftentimes, even, this, again, the seminary students that we, I will interact with will take this verse you know, when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, they'll take that verse as if Jesus is offering an entire disconnect between his kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. And let me tell you, this passage does no such thing. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he is not saying my kingdom is not in this world. He's not saying my kingdom will have no effect upon the world. What he's basically saying here is the means by which this kingdom is governed is not the way the world governs. It's not the way this world works. But we don't want to translate that or understand that in such a way as to go, I guess, the kingdom is entirely other and has nothing to do with the world at all. That's a mistake. And you should be, as you read that, it should be obvious. Even though the kingdom of God is not of this world, that is, you're not going to find the strategy for the advancement of the kingdom in some war library someplace, the the genesis of this kingdom is found in the word of God itself, which is not of this world, but of Christ. So in one sense, the kingdom is very spiritual, being within people. And something, Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So in that respect, we see it's very spiritual. But in another sense, the kingdom of God has what you'd call a temporal, and by temporal I mean it's in time, right? It's, you, there's, there's a clock on it. A temporal and observable side to it. You can see it. It could come near you. So we're not to view the kingdom of God as merely spiritual or merely physical, but both. Although the blessings of this kingdom have a spiritual and eternal aspect to them, probably, you know, in the greatest sense, if you're in the kingdom of God, truly, that goes on forever, right? There's no end to that. But Jesus taught that what was going on in this kingdom would have an impact upon the world in which we live. How else are you going to read this? Luke 18.29, which is also in Mark, it's in the Synoptic Gospels. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or parents, or brothers, or wife, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Just understanding, like, Jesus is being asked, you know, people are saying, I think it's Peter who says, look at, we've, we've sacrificed a lot to follow you. Well, you know, so what's in it for us? You know, like today's church, right? I mean, we all function that way, right? We go to church, and we want to know, was I fed? How, how did it affect me? What do I get out of this? I mean, you know, it's just the way people are, going all the way back to the apostles. Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get out of it? I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or parents, or brothers, or wife, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more 
in heaven. Wait a minute, that's not what it says. It doesn't say that. Many times more, in this present time and in the age to come, eternal life. Well, it seems to be, he seems to be indicating that the effects of the kingdom of God will happen at some level in history. Matter of fact, in Mark's account of this, he repeats all the things. Houses and friends and you know, family and so forth. All that to say this. Calvin, John Calvin put it this way. It is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. There's both. There's the invisible and there's the visible, but one should have a dramatic impact upon the other. Now, moving forward, entrance into the kingdom. How do you get in? I want in. Entrance into the kingdom of God can be very puzzling. It is the context of the well-known statement by Jesus with men, it is impossible. That's the context. With me, this is the whole, you know, the whole story of the rich young ruler and you know, Jesus kind of republishing the law for the rich young ruler. And he's like, yeah, I'm pretty good at it all. And he's like, well, you lack one thing. And he walks away. And then the apostles are like going, he was a pretty good guy. What's the deal? And it's like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then they're all just freaking out, right? They're like, well, who can get into the kingdom of God? And his answer is, it's impossible. But then there are the very comforting words that follow, right? That with God, all things are possible. By the way, that's the context of with God, all things are possible. It's not getting a touchdown in the Super Bowl. <laughs> the faith necessary to enter the kingdom of God something that is impossible for men to generate, is granted by God himself. You need to know, if you have faith, you didn't come up with it. When asked about his kingdom parables, Jesus revealed the power of God at work. Matthew 13, 11, he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you, it's been given to you, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been given. It's a recognition that if we in fact know of the kingdom of God, it is because it, is, it itself is a gift from God. And this is accentuated when Jesus informs Nicodemus of the astounding prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom of heaven and that well-known discussion that culminates with John 3.16 and so forth. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not only can you not enter it, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Now, there are certain groups of, there's a certain group of Christian, Christians that have kind of hijacked that. You know, there are Christians and then there are born-again Christians. You've heard of that? Well, he's one of the born-agains, you know, and they, all of a sudden, they're, and usually they're a little bit more excited about stuff, you know. Let me tell you, if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. I mean, strictly speaking, you need to be born from above. And not only that, it's not... I, and I was raised in a religious environment where the, being born from above was something we did. 
But that's not, in that whole passage, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus gets confused. You know, he's like, what do you mean I need to be born again? Can I re-enter my mother's womb and so forth? And then Jesus gives what, by all accounts, I remember when I first preached on this over 30 years ago, I had to kind of like bring in my own like tract and help Jesus out, right? Well, this is where we ask Jesus into our heart, and this is where we do this, we do that. But if you read the passage, Jesus doesn't go there at all. You know where he goes? He goes, the wind blows wherever it wants to blow. You're like going, well, wait a minute. I'm running a very organized ministry here, and I can't really depend upon the wind blowing. I, I need to know. You fill out that card, you know, so we know the conversions and what have you. But I think we need to know this as those whose eyes have hopefully prayerfully been opened to the truth of the kingdom of God and of his king is that we did not come into this kingdom by the mere force of our own will. Faith itself, faith is not our contribution to our salvation. Faith itself is a gift from God. God, he regenerates us from above. Well, finally, and perhaps the most, and by finally, it doesn't mean I'm coming to the end of the sermon. It's just finally in this part of it here. (laughs) In its most consummated sense, the kingdom of God would be heaven itself, right? Like the full consummation of the kingdom, Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And I think this is where people kind of go, well, it's not something, the kingdom isn't something you advance, it's something you inherit. But what we're talking about here is judgment day. We're not talking about the work of the kingdom throughout the course of history. We're talking about the consummation of history. We're talking about the actual final judgment. So, in quick review... The kingdom of God existed through Israel in the Old Covenant and then moves in the New Covenant to the church, which is international. It will grow slowly, surely, permeating all things. It is not a political itself entity, but will have its effect, I would argue, upon all entities, including political entities. It's not as if the political arena has a you know, a a lead case separating it from the effects of the kingdom of God. It is entered by grace through faith, and the full consummation of this kingdom is heaven itself. And let us not forget that it has one king who is Christ. So, with that behind us, what are we praying for in the advancement of God's kingdom? Thy kingdom come. What is, what is the outward manifestation of God's kingdom? What is the heart of God's kingdom for which we pray? What are you praying? I'm sure many of you have got that prayer memorized. What are you saying when you get there? Well, in the same way a nation's heart, my wife loves to go to Washington, D.C. and walk around and kind of look at what's going on there. It's revealed and perpetuated a nation's heart by its laws, by its documents. You kind of look at, you want to know a little bit about the nation, you look at, you know, what are its governing statutes? What do you think is right and wrong in this nation? Who's in charge here anyway? You know, that's where you get a feel for a nation. The heart of the kingdom of God 
is revealed in its outward manifestation. And that outward manifestation, and this may sound shocking to you, being clearly governed by the word of God, but the outward manifestation of the kingdom of God is the church. Now, again, I mean, we're like going, wait a minute. Like, you don't want to overemphasize the church. In a temporal, remember, in time, in a physical, observable, touchable, the heart of the kingdom of God is revealed through Christian churches. Local churches, which together form that holy Catholic church of people who profess the true faith along with their children. These are the organisms where the kings, this this idea, this institution, this place called the church is where the king's law and gospel is preached. Right? That's where it, that is where God has said, this is where I want my word preached through the church. His sacraments are administered through the church. His praises are sung. His victory proclaimed. When you come into an event like this, you're coming into that outward, physical, visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. You and I, we're hearing about the king of kings. We're praising the king of kings. This is where it all takes place. I would say the church might be compared, in a certain sense, to a nation's capital, right? Like I said, my wife loves, to, we, we've gone a couple of times, and you walk through the nation's capital, and you see things like the copies of the original documents. You see memorials of the great leaders, the great victories. You see testimonials of these leaders, what they did. These things are designed to reveal the heart of that nation. These things are designed to inspire those who visit to engage in that same enterprise. This idea that, you know, there's a great, this is a great nation. They've done some great things. We should follow through with those types of things. Now, again, this is not a speech on patriotism. I'm just doing this by analogy. In the church, that's what's happening. We're hearing, we're observing, and we're participating in those things that should bring our hearts and minds to this kingdom, what it is, where it's going, and what's my place in it. These are all designed to reveal the heart of that nation and inspire those who visit to engage. You're not here, this is not a show, you're not the audience, right? We're all, I mean, God is the audience, and we're all here for Him. You get this idea, you know, that when we gather together, it's just a, we have this call to worship, God is calling us. He sent His Son to die for us. And then He calls us to come into His house. I mean, let me ask you, if, if, I, if I can turn this into something a little bit more um, palpable, right? If, if in fact, you, you were in a war and you had a buddy who died, saving your life, and his parents invited you to their house, would you walk in with a what's-in-it-for-me disposition? And yeah, we kind of do that in the church, right? It's like, I need to be fed, I need to... And look, and I'm not against you being fed and you having a positive experience, but the whole disposition of turning the Christian faith into a product, and we're all the consumers, has put all of this on its head. We are not coming to church to connect with God. We are coming to church because God is connected with us. 
And we're here praising him for having done that, not trying to get into some better place than the blood of Christ can somehow bring us. There has been, I think, and I know I'm one of them, recent downplay of the importance of church. The value of the church has not always been viewed as so expendable. I think, you know, because we have mass media and stuff like that, we can kind of sit at home and go, I can listen to sermons by Spurgeon. Like, there are guys who are doing Spurgeon sermons on sermon audio. I'd rather listen to Spurgeon than me. Right? And yet, yeah, thank you. (laughs) Well, other than the fact that he's a Baptist, right? But other than that. But we have this kind of mass media. That we have this ability to, ability to access and access and access. And not only that, we have books, right? Bookstores. Now we can just go online and go to Amazon and buy all these books and what have you. So what need do I have for church when I've got access at my fingertips to all of this? So it's, it's almost as if the church is now in the wings because I've got my own personal method by, by which I'm going to grow. So the church becomes somewhat expendable, but it's not always been that way. And not only has it not been that way by view of just the pragmatic history, it's not been that way theologically. That God is not trusting the advancement to his kingdom to Zondervan Publishing. Right? He's not trusting the advancement of his kingdom to KKLA or KBRT or any other Christian station. Or Channel 40. Does that even exist anymore? If not, prayers must have been answered. I don't want to sound too. The Westminster Confession, which was written in the 1640s, teaches something when I first read, I found astonishing. The visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And they use that word ordinary specifically recognizing that many people were saved you know, in a different way. But we've, we have now taken the exception and we've made it the rule. Right? We've got parachurch organizations. We've got, we've got all these things that have supplanted the church. But God has called the church to take responsibility for the advancement of his kingdom. And it is, in fact, in a certain, like I say, visible sense, the kingdom itself. I mean, clearly, I don't know if you do how much research you do on this. People are like, oh, you know, you don't, you don't need to go to church. You know, there are a lot of people. I've actually read, a, I have a book in my library. The church age is over. It doesn't even exist anymore. But if you read your Bibles, clearly Christ ordained that there should be local churches. I mean, the letters of the New Testament written to the churches in Galatia, right? Corinth. Right? Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, I mean, uh, you know, all, uh, Colossians, all these are written to local specific churches. And these churches are called to have what? Pastors and deacons and elders. These churches are the means by which God is determined to advance his kingdom. Jesus said, on this rock I shall build what? My church. And, and what's it going to do? And the gates of hell will will not prevail against it. We see the church up front and center. Maybe we'll talk about this on Friday. The idea that, in a certain sense, the church is to be built right next to the gates of death. That it might overtake the gates of death. 
overtake. We don't, we don't, the church isn't some retreatist position way back going, don't touch me. No, the church, and I, I think I mentioned this in a sermon recently, is you've got this, this castle of darkness in the church. It's like that battering ram that is battering the doors down. And while you're doing it, even as the passage we read earlier, with persecutions, as you're doing it, they're pouring hot oil on you, right? They're shooting arrows at you. But you are called to batter that door down. And what Jesus has taught is that door will come down, but we are to be active in the pursuit of that. We must highly esteem Christ's church for that sacred message which God as entrusted by his spirit to his church, is the heart of the kingdom of God. This is where he's going, you're going to hear it here. The word and sacrament, the preaching of the word, the Lord's Supper, baptism, are the touch points between the mundane and the divine. So, Again, what are we praying for when we pray for the advancement of God's kingdom? Now that we've kind of like, kind of taken our minds and go, okay, it seems to be very related to the church. So what are we praying when we pray for the advancement of the kingdom? We are praying for open doors and abundant success in the planting of those venues that are called churches. We're praying that God will start churches. We're praying that God will start these organizations, these institutions, where his word is proclaimed, where his law is heralded, where his son is placarded. We are praying that those who take rank against the advancement of his church are either converted or removed from their positions of power and influence. That's when, you know, the imprecatory psalms come in. I mean, it's hard for us, but there is an environment where you're going, Lord, either convert that guy or remove him. Because the word and sacrament are only valuable if they're actually performed. It's got to go out. You've got to put shoe leather to your convictions. I mean, that, that shouldn't be surprising to us, right? I mean... When we hear about our, you know, the church in China, especially because I'm more connected with that, and and we hear about advancements there, we hear it moving forward. We hear of conversions of people in significant places, opening doors. Do we not almost instinctively praise God for that having been done? Are we not praying, Lord, deliver these people from their labor camps, deliver them from the oppression of the evil one, remove those people who have got their hands on the necks of the saints. And when we see it happen, when we hear about that happening, do we not go praise God? Praise God that he's moving forward and his kingdom is advancing. Do we not all recognize that in the most ordinary sense that we're praying that God's ministers will get their passports and access to some turf where they can proclaim the message. I mean, we pray that way in our Bible studies, right? Hey, I'm about to go on in this trip, you know, pray for me, you know, safe arrival, we'll get to where the church is. I mean, 
we maybe don't think of it that when we do that, we're praying in a very mundane sense. By mundane, I don't mean of lesser value, but in a very physical sense, we're praying for the advancement of his kingdom. When we pray, thy kingdom come, in the most, and again, mundane just means in the sense where it's functioning within the world, we are praying for church buildings, or at least church settings, where congregations can gather and hear and see. We are praying for a favorable legislation when it comes to setting up those buildings and venues. We are praying for pastors, evangelists, who can be subsidized and devoted full-time to the ministry. Give them, Lord, what they need. Don't muzzle the ox. Make sure they're taken care of. We are praying that the planes and the trains and the buses carrying these ministers will arrive safely to their destinations. When you pray that way, in a very mundane sense, you're praying for the advancement of the kingdom of God. What about when we pray thy kingdom come in a ministerial sense? In doing that, we are praying that churches and pastors hold fast and contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You might feel a little uncomfortable with the idea that the church is the kingdom of God, right? Seems a bit much. How'd you like to be the pastor and hear that? This idea that the elders, you, you guys are officers in the kingdom of God. It should make you fear. It should, and what, what happens is if you want to pray, what you need to do is pray that God will keep your pastor and your elders where they should be in terms of their humility before the living God and their conviction to ever preach the truth. What we don't want to do is go, well, churches have failed so much, I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to use, God doesn't really know what he's doing when he's saying it's going to go through the church. I've been fed way more through my little group here or something along those lines. No, that is not it. God has what he is doing and he's doing it through the church. And you need to pray for the church that the church remain faithful. I mean, our church, interestingly enough, we're called the Branch of Hope. I mean, our history, our, the, you know, the beginning of our church was in the uh, Foursquare. You know, are you familiar with Foursquare? I mean, there's some, don't get me wrong, there's some good Foursquare churches. But it was started by Amy Semple McPherson, who is not one of the better theologians throughout history. Also, the first church I worked at, it wasn't a four-square church. It was a Presbyterian Church USA, which is a denomination that has kind of gone off the rails. I'm saying that because I have seen up close and personal how churches go sideways. And we need to be aware of the fact that that could be our church. And we need to recognize that God has given us a high call as the church to advance his kingdom and to be his kingdom and if this goes to our head and we become too big for our britches, that is phase one and moving in the wrong direction. So when you pray thy kingdom come, you're praying that churches maintain their purity and they resist an amalgamation with the corruptions of the world by which they're surrounded. By the way, which is we see in Revelation with those seven churches over and over and over, right? They're being influenced by their environment. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. You need to persevere. You need to remain faithful. You need to overcome. He's not saying you need to find a different institution. He's saying this, this institution needs to repent. We need to ever be repenting. We need to ever be reforming. 
we pray that pastors, elders, deacons, and members will ever recognize that the preaching of the law and the gospel of Christ and the proper administration of baptism and the loaf and the cup are the means by which God will advance his kingdom. I mean, we live in a funny time. We live in a time, we live in an era where you can go to certain churches and you can go for years and never have the Lord's Supper. It's just, it's not on the top 10. It's not on the short list of the means by which God will advance his kingdom in your heart. But that is the means by which God has chosen to advance his kingdom. And finally, and really finally this time, when we pray that kingdom come in a spiritual and, if you will, supernatural sense, we are praying that in all of that, like we've prayed for the buses, we've prayed for the pastors, but here we are praying that in a spiritual and supernatural sense, we are praying that God will bring to bear upon the hearts of men and women the truth of the person and work of Christ. All the roads lead to Christ. It is our only, or I should put it this way, He is our only hope. We are praying that those who come will hear the name and call upon His name and be set free from the law of sin and death, that they will be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and they will find themselves in His glorious kingdom. We are praying that men and women will seek to serve this loving and gracious and benevolent king of all kings as the kingdom grows extensively and intensively, as it grows this way and as it grows within our own hearts. And we are praying that these efforts have worldwide success, growing and permeating every nation and kindred and tongue until the consummation of history to the glory of his hallowed name. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray, thanking you that you've opened our eyes and hearts and you've granted us, Father, the ability to see and you've inclined our hearts to enter your kingdom. And I pray if there's anybody here who has not yet done that, Father, that your mighty work of grace would find its way into their minds and hearts, that you would redeem their souls and they would know the great inheritance of those who are part of your glorious kingdom. We pray, Father, for our church. We pray for our denomination. We pray for churches throughout the world that they would ever persevere in that, Father, which you've called them to do, to faithfully preach Christ and him crucified, to ever keep him front and center in their messages, to herald his holy name that the world might be changed, and that you might, in fact, as Jesus said, save the world, and we pray in his precious name. Amen.